Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanksgiving for who you are, for what you've done that's preserved for us in your word that we can read about and reflect on and rejoice over and even come to you in prayer that you might even be pleased to do similar works afresh again in our day for the display of your glory. And Lord, that hope, that anticipation is what has brought us to this text this morning. So would you walk us through it? Would you, by the power of your spirit, illuminate your intentions with this text for our body right now in the life of our church We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, we're we're stepping away for the week on purpose from our our series exploring our redemption. We're doing that for a number of of reasons, all of which are intentional, some of which were kind of forced through the urgency of a week that just included many reminders of how blessed we are and some uh, challenges, struggles, particularly... Um, having to get something yanked out of my head so that they can tell me what's going on with things growing on my head and just the stress and the anxiety of that and watching uh, my my daughter have something just uh, unfortunate happen to her and seeing her uh, just suffer in pain throughout much of the week. So trials, struggles like that, anxieties like that, kind of forcing you to reevaluate life and, and just driving you to your knees again in prayer, all in, all in good ways, waiting upon God to see what he's going to do. And then us having uh, multiple meetings this week uh, just as, as elders and then meeting with other local pastors and hearing them ask us questions, what's going on at Christ Fellowship, how you guys do, and what's your plan going forward. And, and Chris and I having to step back and, to, and to, to realize, to be reminded of how unbelievably blessed we are here and really wanting to steward the blessings that God has entrusted to us well. So from a, a, a trial-oriented perspective and then from a blessing perspective, just being driven to the same place, back to prayer and, and to, to praise. It just seemed like as, as the week went on and even into yesterday that, that the next sermon, which is on the, the significance of the burial of Jesus, could just be pushed off another week because in in my personal life and it seemed to be kind of coinciding with what might hopefully be a helpful place for our church to revisit is this text in Ephesians 3 verses 20 and, and 21 if you were here a little over 3 years ago we this is not the first time that we have visited this text together as a church um, again if 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 you were here, 
three years ago. The, the circumstances under which we visited this text to begin with were far different than what they are now. Back then, it was seriously using this text as a plea to to re-engage. If you remember correctly, we had just sent a significant third of our church over um, for very God-ordained good reasons to help get another church back off the ground. And the plea from this text was, don't give up, don't disengage. God is big, God is sovereign, God has planned for the display of his glory to happen in the church. So, so re-engage, stay engaged here. And now we find ourselves coming back to this text under far different circumstances by many measurable things. And the plea this morning isn't re-engage, it's don't coast. Don't interpret the blessings that have been bestowed, poured out on us as of late as uh, an excuse that now we're safe, now we can coast. It's It's a plea to continue to plead with God and to praise Him for all of the blessings that he uh, has given to us, as well as, as, as trials that he ordains for our good and for the display of his, of his glory in, in our lives. So our, our text this morning is a doxology. By definition, doxology means an expression or an ascription of praise to God. I personally would like to add a a few words to the end of that definition and and say doxology is an expression or an ascription of praise to God for who he is and for what he's done. And to me, those few words make a huge difference because they reserve praise for the Only God whose being is self-generated and whose nature is therefore untainted by sin and whose actions therefore are always good and praiseworthy because they are the overflow of his perfect being. The, The point there is that doxology is never for lifeless idols or created things. Doxology is rightful for the true and living God alone. And that is what our text is this morning. It is a doxology. Ephesians 3 verses 20 and 21 is an ascription of praise to God for who he is, for what he's done, and for what he will do. And I just want to use this text this morning to once again push us to be A church whose knowledge of God leads us to uplifted hands in praise for who he is and what he's done. As well as back down to a posture of knees bent low in prayer for what he might be pleased to do in the future here. But on our way to that end... I do feel the need to spend a few minutes placing these verses in their proper context in Ephesians since we're jumping for one sermon into the middle of a letter and just picking two verses to focus on, which handled wrongly could be a very dangerous and unhelpful thing. So it is worth it to spend some time placing these verses appropriately. It is significant that Ephesians 3 verses 20 and 21 are the last two verses 
of the first main section of this letter. So if you can think of Ephesians as a letter that's divided into two main sections, I think that would be very helpful for you, very simple for you, and very accurate. Chapters 1 to 3 as the first section, and chapters 4 to 6 as the second section. The first section, chapters 1 to 3, is highly doctrinal. Very little application in the first three chapters. It's all about God, his person, his works. The second section is likewise all about God, but it's very application-oriented. It's the application of the first three chapters. Our text, then, is the conclusion to the doctrinal section. So, so think for a minute how fitting it is that three chapters on God's person and God's works ends in doxology. Ends naturally in praise. It's not a coincidence. That is where the knowledge of God always leads his people. It leads his people to uplifted hands to God in praise for who he is and for what he's done as well as to knees bent low before him to pray and to dream that he might do what he's done in the past again in our day among us. One more structure thing that helps us place our text is the fitting, the the natural, the joyful, the sincere conclusion to all that's been revealed about God in the first three chapters is the reality that this is not the first doxology in Ephesians. What is striking, awesome, incredible to me about the first three chapters of this letter is that they begin and they end the same way. They begin and they end in doxology. So if you think back to the beginning of the letter, what's the first thing Paul says after his greeting? He says this in Ephesians 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is that? That is doxology. That is ascription to God, praise to God for the blessedness of his being. It's an ascription of praise, an ascription of blessedness to the being of God. And what happens after that doxology for the next 11 verses? All the way through verse 14, all Paul does for the next 11 verses as well as for the next three chapters until we come again to doxology in our text, is talk about God, who he is, what he's done. So the three chapters of this letter that focus on the doctrine of God, who he is, what he's done, begin and they end the same way in doxology. The doxology in chapter 1, verse 3, looks ahead to all that Paul is about to write about the being and the works of God. Chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, then look back at all that Paul has just written about the being and the works of God. I think that places our text in the letter as a whole. It is the natural, joyful, Sincere response to the being of God as Paul has presented him in chapters 1 through 3. Now now let's zoom in a little bit on chapter 3 itself. Because our two verses are found not only at the end of one big section that chapters 1 through 3 
is or are, but they're also found in connection with the smaller section of verses that begins in chapter 3, verse 14, where Paul is on his knees praying for the believers in Ephesus. And what's he praying for them for? He's praying that God would, quote, strengthen them by his spirit to know the love of Christ and to be full of Christ. And so that's where we catch up with him this morning in our text, because our text, our two verses then, is Paul's recognition that the God that he has just talked about for three chapters is able to answer his prayers for these believers in Ephesus. So that is where we find ourselves. We find ourselves beholding the person of our God, being reminded of his wondrous works, being left with hands held high in praise and knees bent low in prayer. So let's go here in our text so that we might go here and live here in our lives. The first thing that I want us to see in our text is the actual doxology. Because verses 20 and 21 are one 43-word sentence where the beginning and the end forms the doxology. And the middle then is full of descriptors of that which Paul is saying makes God worthy to be praised in this particular situation. So understand, this isn't just generic praise. This is God revealing himself in a specific situation that he designed to result in praise. The doxology itself is, beginning in verse 20, quote, Now to him. And that's really all that I want you to see right now from verse 20. Now to him, go to verse 21. Now to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and forever. So Paul has just said that God's eternal plan was to make himself known in Christ and through the church. And part of Paul's doxology is a recognition and a prayer that God would do that very thing. Now to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and forever. So this is Paul latching on to what God revealed about himself and God's intentions in the world and him coming before God and praising him for who he is and his ability to do what he wants and then praying that he would in fact do it. So he's saying, God, your intention is to make your glory known in Christ and through the church. So he's saying here in the doxology, glory be to you, God, because you're worthy of this. And nobody is going to stand in your way from doing this. So he's saying here, do it, Lord. He's saying, glorify yourself in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and forever. And that is what doxology is once again. It is praise of the being of the eternal God and praise of his works, whether those works are past works that display his glory or present works that are designed for the display of his glory or future works that are designed in the future for the future display of his glory. So get get what I want to say here. If this passage were only praise of the unchanging, eternal being of God and praise of the works that he's done in history. It would be enough to keep our hands lifted high and our hearts full of joy that we are in him, 
in his family, in his plants. So if all this was, was a record of creation, flood, Tower of Babel, Exodus, return from exile. If all it was was a record of God's amazing, incredible, miraculous, generous works in the past, it would be enough to keep our hands lifted high and our knees bent low in prayer, praising him for who he is and what he's done and praying that he might once again do it in our midst today. But this passage is more than that. There is a future aspect of Paul's praise here. And it's based upon Paul's embrace of God's sovereignty because the God he's praising is the God who's guiding all of history to the end that he has, in fact, appointed for it. So God reveals to us his nature and his works. And I said if all this was was a past record of what he's revealed about himself and his works, it would be enough to keep us praising and keep us praying and keep us full of joy forever. But just like from the other end, if God in his sovereignty detailed everything he intends to do in the future, so people, times, places, if that's what this was, that should never leave us passive and lazy and disengaged and coasting and just sitting around and waiting for God to bring his sovereign will to pass. If God in his sovereignty revealed that kind of detail always, and I I say always because sometimes he has, So if God in his sovereignty revealed that kind of detail always, I would hope that would leave us as a church overwhelmed with praise that all that he's planned and on our knees in prayer that he might be pleased to use us to bring his sovereign will to pass. But he doesn't always do that, does he? He doesn't always provide for us that kind of detail. He reveals those details at times in Scripture, but admittingly, those details are rare. And that isn't discouraging, because what God does for us is arguably more stunning than if he just laid out all the details of his eternal sovereign plan for us. And what is more stunning in our text than him revealing all the details of his sovereign plan to the end of history for us, that he is, in fact, guiding all of human history towards flawlessly, infallibly, perfectly. What's more stunning than him revealing all the details of that plan is that he tells us where all of history is, in fact, going. His glory in the church and in Christ throughout all generations. But in our text then, he turns us loose to pray and to dream about how he might be pleased to bring that plan to pass in our midst today. That's where Paul goes in this doxology. 
So now, let's come back and let's reinsert the detail that we briefly set aside to see the actual doxology. Because reinserting the details where we're going to find ourselves just set free to pray and to dream together as a church. The, the God that Paul praises is the God who, in our text, is able to do two things. First, he is able, in our text, to do far more abundantly than all that we ask. And he is able to do far more abundantly, all, uh, far more abundantly than all that we think. There is a difference that, it, that is not a redundancy there is a difference so we'll take them one at a time first paul praises the god who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask it makes sense to me that paul is thinking about god answering prayer here because he's just finished praying that god would grant the believers in ephesus strength by the spirit to know christ and to be full of christ And he acknowledges here that God is able to do that far more abundantly than what he has even asked. So so we took the time that we did this morning to ground our two verses where they are found in Ephesians because these two verses are two very misused verses in the Bible. We can't remove them from the argument of Ephesians 3 or from being the fitting conclusion to the first three chapters of Ephesians and just use them to hope that whatever we might pray for, that God would be willing to do way more, which to us typically means quantifiably more. Money, stuff, things, bigger, better. It's typically our categories. We pray that way because Ephesians 3.20 says, hey, God is able to do exceeding abundantly above what I ask or pray. Don't get me wrong. That may in fact happen to you as a sheer gift of God's generosity toward you. My point here is that we must keep in mind that what he's talking about here in this text is going way beyond the prayers of his people as his, the prayers of his people relate directly to his stated purpose of granting existence to all things, which is the display of his glory in Christ and in the church throughout all generations. So, so if I can just use my own language here to describe this God's glory in the church and in Christ throughout all generations are designed here to form kind of the the tracks or the boundaries of our prayers. So whatever I'm praying for, this is what I ought to be seeking in my prayers. That in this specific situation that calls for me to look beyond all the resources that God has granted human beings to live life in a responsible, accountable way. To look to Him in the urgency of prayer. 
My prayer for him to step in and be God in this situation ought to be motivated, motivated by a desire for him to answer in such a way that accomplishes what he wants to accomplish more than anything else in the world and every generation of history, which is the display of his glory in Christ and in the body of Christ. That is why Paul asks these believers in verse 13 not to lose heart over his sufferings. He says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. He's saying, don't feel bad for me that my suffering on your behalf is the means by which God is doing what he says his desire is to do in the world. Because his glory is being displayed in Christ among you by my suffering is what Paul's saying. His prayer then for them is that God would strengthen them. By his spirit for this same thing, the display of his glory in Christ among them in whatever way that God would choose to display it, which in this context, I think, implies possible suffering. So so the prayer here for them may very well be, God, please don't bring suffering. I don't want to suffer. But Paul is saying that God is able to answer your prayers far more abundantly than what we pray and that doesn't mean that whatever you pray god will do quantifiably more so if you're praying here god i don't want to suffer that means then you can claim the promise that god will not only prevent suffering but he will bring ease in your life to an even greater degree than you feared suffering that's not what he's saying you can't use these verses that way him being the sovereign God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask, means that in our prayers, we ought to be seeking to the best of our reasoning power and to the best of our sensitivity to his spirit, the answer to our prayers that might best display God to the world. His glorious nature revealed in his glorious works in Christ and in us to our generation. So that when God answers, and however he answers, we are brought back once again off of our knees to uplifted hands in praise. Because his way of accomplishing his stated ends for this world is always most perfect. So God is worthy to be praised. His being, his works, they they call for generation after generation. Praise from his people, uplifted hands, praise to him for who he is and what he's done, which then leads his people back to their knees to pray to him that he would answer every prayer that we feel prompted by the Spirit to pray in the way that in his sovereignty most clearly, most gloriously displays once again his glorious person and works. And I I think that an an obvious, probably unnecessary implication of that is that access to God in prayer was never intended to be an unloading ground of everything that our naturally selfish hearts desire and hope that God, simply because he is all-powerful, will give our selfish hearts more than we ask him for. Because he can. Access to his throne. 
granted through the atoning death of his son in our place and for our sins is granted so that those whom he has filled with his spirit would seek in our prayers what the spirit himself who indwells us seeks, which is the glory of God in Christ and in the church throughout all generations. And I think we can be confident from this text that when his people pray this way, that we can anticipate God answering those prayers far more abundantly than what we've asked. And it might seem like he is being redundant when he follows that by saying, God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we think as well. But in this passage, praying and thinking are different. We can illustrate this difference as simply as recalling times in our lives when God has stepped into situations that we envisioned him stepping into but never really prayed for because it just didn't seem logical or possible. That's the difference, I think, that he's making here between ask and think, as the ESV has it. I think we would be very much helped to see the difference here by, by knowing that our understanding of think, so ask or think, our perception of think here is far too intellectual than what Paul is saying here. Think, in our understanding, is what we do in school, or seminary, or when you're using math to balance your checkbook or do your taxes. So for the sake of seeing this distinction between Paul's asking and thinking, I want you to set aside think and get a more accurate perception of the word by replacing it with imagine. Now, I'm not doing an injustice to this text to insert that word in place of think. Imagine is the word. And it's connected to ask. But it busts the logic and the reason out of it. Imagine takes us off of our knees at our bedside in the urgency or the stress of the moment as we think deeply about how God might be using this situation to show his glory and trying to the best of our God-given reason to submit ourselves to that and pray to that end, this distinction takes us out of that reasonable, heavy, weighty, urgent situation and it just throws us out on our backs into an open field of green grass on a nice summer day to look up at the clouds and to use our imagination to dream about how God might love to explode logic and reveal his glory in Christ and in the church, in our generation, in a far more exceeding, abundant way than what we could ever have perceived he would. So God wants us to think deeply 
and to pray accordingly about how he might be pleased to display his glory in Christ and in the church to our generation and to future generations in the situations that he's ordered for us. And that to praise him for how he answers our prayers because his answers are always the overflow of his perfect, glorious, generous being and they always accomplish his appointed ends. God loves to glorify himself by honoring his son in the church and in the world in every generation. But he also wants us not to be afraid to think bigger. Which means here to dream big. That he might display his glory in Christ and in the church, in our generation, in a way that just throws logic out the window. And sets aside the responsible, God-given power of reason as it relates to specific, urgent situations. And I just want to throw out the question to you, how, when do you go there in your life? When do you leave the reasonable, heavy, weighty, calculated urgency of the bedside moment and throw logic out the window and just go out and dream. I should ask, when's the last time you did that in reference to your church? And it's not a, don't, don't interpret that as, I, I know when the last time was for you, so I'm imposing guilt. It goes back to the reason for revisiting this text three or three and a half years after we were here before under completely different circumstances. It was like then... More logic and we die. Dream. So that we might live. And now here, under completely different circumstances, that are, I think, the result of God answering dreams and big prayers in a way that just exploded logic, now that there's a sense maybe of safety or stability and the urgency doesn't seem to be as as strong... The application is here. Don't get logical. Don't get reasonable. Don't stop dreaming. Don't stop thinking big. So, so, so Christ fellowship. May we, in all that we do always. May we in all of our public gatherings, may we in all of our private devotions, may we in all of our relationships, may we always seek to behold the being of our God first and foremost. Always. To continue to remind ourselves of the display of His glory in the past, in all the wondrous works that we've seen from Him in His Word, and in our lives, and in our midst, in our short history together. 
And may we then live in light of those things in a continual posture of praise toward him for who he is and for what he's done. But then may we also in the present, in real life, God-ordained, urgent situations, think deeply about how God might have ordered this for the display of his glory and certainly pray accordingly. And I think all of that from this text is probably just a helpful, a challenging reminder of what you know already and probably what we all in some degree probably would admit failure in, in our praise of his nature and his works and our tendency because we're sinners by nature to be often be too self-centered in our prayers. So I think that all of that is pretty obvious by way of application. So we're reminded and we're hopefully challenged there, but Christ fellowship, may we also not be afraid to throw away logic at times. Never to leave the boundaries of God's stated purpose of the display of his glory in Christ and in the church and in all generations not to be limited to our reasoning powers about how God might be pleased to bring his sovereign plan to pass. May we not be afraid to revert back to childhood before you even knew what logic was. And remember that the God who is, is a God who, unlike us, is not bound by logic and actually at times loves to just explode it in order to glorify himself by setting the glory of his son on display in the church in such a way that will be remembered for generations to come. So, brothers and sisters, let me encourage you, plead with you, if necessary, to set aside your sophisticated adulthood (laughs) and like a child to run out into the open fields of green grass on nice summer days in your hopes and prayers and dreams for your church and to just lay back and look up at the clouds and dream big for the display of God's glory in Christ here at Christ Fellowship because from our text we know that that is what he is seeking at all times, in every generation, in every local church on the face of this earth forever and forever. So that's the end that I now invite you to join me in praying towards as we close. Let's pray. Our God, we give you thanks that a fallout of our redemption in Christ is that even our our prayer lives are redeemed. Lord, no longer are we in bondage to 
the self-centeredness that so often just naturally wants to surface itself. Lord, give us through blood-bought grace and by the power of the indwelling Spirit hopes and, and dreams all the while implementing, using the, the benefits of thinking minds and reasoning minds together as, as a church family. We continue to pray about how to steward what you have entrusted to us. To know, Lord, how to, how to pray, how to dream. Lord, we want to, we want to see the full atonement of your Son. His his atoning death, his triumphant resurrection, his present and eternal reign on display here. We want your person and your works to be on display here, seen by our community, embraced by faith through the work of the Spirit and those who do not yet embrace it. Give us grace to not coast, to give us grace to not lose hope, give us grace to not ever presume or assume that we're safe or stable, but always to seek more, not for ourselves, but because who you are and what you have done is so worthy of big, big display. All this, Lord, is far too big for us. So, Lord, we gladly heave it upon your strong shoulders where it belongs. We give you thanks for this in Jesus' name.